This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. This is the G Podcast, and today, school is in session. We got a special guest, Atrey is good. He's running for the at-large seat for the Durham Public School Board of Education. We getting right to it, y'all. One more time, y'all. This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. Atreus, thank you so much for joining. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Man, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good, and, and we're just going to dive right into this. You, you recently announced that you were running for an at-large seat on the Durham Public Schools Board of Education, and as of today, you dropped the campaign video. So before we dive into the conversation, I just want to start here by letting people see the intro video, and then we'll dive right into the conversation. So let me go ahead and share my screen here. Actually, but before I do that, Talk to me a little bit about what we're about to watch here. Um, what was the the motivation for this this uh, short promo that you put together? I would say it was really a way to try to tell a message as to why I'm running. The current at-large seat is held by Alejandro Valadares, someone who I love, trust, and respect. And quite frankly, I wasn't thinking about entering into politics. I think as an outsider, there are a lot of things that I saw that I don't think really represent the best of what we have to offer. It's a lot of uh, toxic behaviors, a lot of personal cost and media scrutiny. And I've experienced all of that. But I think I still am committed to figuring out ways in which we can uplift the voices of those that need to be heard, in particular, black and brown young people. And being someone that has a lived experience of navigating through different systems and also experiencing personal trauma, I wanted to share a message that really connected with folks as it relates to why I'm running. Word. Dope. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Every human being has dignity and worth, no matter their background, no matter the circumstances. When given opportunities and resources, anyone can use their unique gifts and talents to build a life they can be proud of. But we live in a world where too many young people are thrown away, particularly those who are black and brown. Maybe they've come from the wrong zip code. Maybe they've made mistakes. Maybe they've experienced trauma. We still have a moral obligation to ensure that all youth are given the tools necessary to make meaningful contributions to their schools and communities. We must pay our educators and staff in ways that honor the commitments and sacrifices they're making for our children. Community partners that provide mentoring and tutoring, they critically need our support. And we cannot forget about the mental health resources and restorative justice practices to ensure that young people can pursue meaningful healing. Growing up in a household where drug misuse was prevalent, I saw a number of things that no child should bear witness to. But I met my first mentor through the 100 Black Men of America. And I got the support I needed to chart a different course for my life. As a first-generation college student, I started an award-winning youth development and mentoring program, serving hundreds of middle and high school students across four states. They achieved a 100% high school graduation rate and approximately 96.5% attended college. But in the midst of it all, I was falsely accused of a crime, one of my biggest professional setbacks. But I don't believe you judge someone 
by how many times they get knocked down. You judge someone by how many times they get back up. I raise money for movement of youth by day and clean toilets, I mopped floors, I emptied out trash cans by night. Despite being at one of the lowest points in my life, I gave a TED talk. I started graduate school and I was even afforded the opportunity to work with Movement of You full time. I took this setback and I mounted a major comeback. And that is why I'm running for school board. And I invite you to join me on this important journey because there's one thing for certain, I'm good. I'm good for young people. I'm good for this community. And my name's Atreus Good. And with your vote, I'll be good for the Durham Public Schools Board of Education. Word up. Word up. Now, I, I like what you put together there, right? And, and the play on good. So we're, we're going to talk about this. Like, So just if I'm being honest, man, I've heard of a Board of Education. I don't know what the they do other than collect checks. Like, can you tell me what the Durham Public Schools Board of Education, like, why does it exist? And, and like, what do they actually do in terms of Durham Public Schools? So I would say boards in general, they, they set policy. So you have superintendent and staff, they actually carry out the day-to-day operations, but the board is a governing body. So they help with policy, procedures, things that are supposed to happen throughout the district. And then the staff, they help to implement those policies. And are we talking those policies strictly like curriculum, lesson plans? Or are we even talking about the business of Durham Public Schools, teacher pay, uh, that the whole the whole gamut? So so all of those are into consideration. And I think that um, part of I think what you're seeing right now, with what's been happening within the school district is what has happened with teacher pay. There was, of course, a study that was done that was supposed to outline ways in which folks could could get paid in ways that really represented their experience and things of that nature. Uh, But of course, you've seen how that's played out as it relates to raises that were promised and then they were walked back. Of course, the board as an administrative body was trying to figure out how to fix that situation. Mm -hmm. And and Durham Public Schools was in the news recently because they had to close schools because of something related to lack of bus drivers maybe or lack of something is are these issues that the the school board or or the board of education will help prevent in the future right so essentially this was a part of a i'd say organized effort with one of the local uh political action committees uh to really look at ways to put pressure on the district to figure out how to fix uh the pay situation i think the way in which it played out part of what i've been trying to refocus the conversation on is something called uh, the leandro plan so the leandro um, case was something that was uh done back in the 90s related to making sure that um, every young person could have a sound basic education with the the rulings of that case uh, north carolina is supposed to be able to provide the proper level of resources for every district to be able to do that uh, what that means in context of durham public schools is that there's 70 million dollars that we are due uh to be able to have more teachers to make sure pay is situated to to do all the things that that we should be doing in the first place. And I think that in this situation, there were, I guess, local bodies that were putting pressure on the district to do some things that in many ways the district 
could not do. I think that there were things that were promised that, of course, uh, didn't work out. But the district can't tax. And constitutionally, the uh, county commissioners or the, the county is not responsible for some of the funding gaps. So I'm hopeful that a decision has been made as it relates to what the pay is going to look like. That is something that a lot of folks aren't happy about because, again, it doesn't represent what was originally promised. Uh, but hopefully something can be done at the state level to make sure that there is some sort of sufficient funding for our next budget cycle. Mm. But let, let me take a, a step back because you mentioned in, in the video uh, you're a first generation college student. Uh, wh- where are you from? Actually, I spent some time in Clarkston, Georgia, and then the bulk of my childhood, I'd say, in Charlotte, but kind of back and forth. So Clarkston, of course, is close to Atlanta, and then Charlotte is where I spent uh, middle school onward. Okay. Why did you end up in Charlotte? Like, what took you from Georgia to Charlotte? So part of what I share about my story is just my mom kind of navigating through some drug misuse challenges. And that was primarily when we were in Georgia. And eventually, when she transitioned from using in that way, we moved to Charlotte where we had uh, family that moved to Charlotte kind of represented a better uh, support system. But one of the things that I also mentioned is that uh, the drug misuse was just uh, one of the things that I experienced. There were some other forms of abuse uh, that occurred uh, when I was in Charlotte. And that's essentially what got me connected to uh, the mentoring program that I mentioned, the 100 Black Men of America, that really helped me kind of figure out how to navigate through some of those situations. Mm. And what what age are we talking when you get introduced to this program? So I was uh, 14 when I got connected with the 100. And so essentially, I went to school one day with a black eye and I was told to make up a story as to how that happened. And the school that I was going to in Charlotte, Cochran Middle School, which is now called Cochran Collegiate, mostly black and brown school, under-resourced. A lot of the same things that we're dealing with today, we were dealing with back in, back in that time as well. And I just happened to have a guidance counselor, Miss Reed, who took a liking to me and really just ha- happened to ask me what happened that day. When I came to school, she said, well, baby, what happened to your eye? And I said, I, I accidentally hit myself in the face. And she said, uh, bless your heart. I want you to take a look at it. If you like it, I'll enroll you. And that was the 100 Black Men of America, the Greater Charlotte Chapter uh, program that I mentioned. Uh, that really represented a, a different pathway for me and being able to connect with uh, Black doctors, bankers, lawyers, a number of just different role models that helped me to see possibilities. And that's essentially what kind of helped me move forward. So so that's at age 14. So I guess my question is, because I, I, where I know you from is uh, you and, and my wife both went to UNC and then we ended up uh, being neighbors in, in, in Durham when we relocated back to Durham, right? That That's how I ca- uh, came to know you. Uh, but I guess my question is, is be, and, and I'm asking this because I've always said that the the experience in college is, in my opinion, what it takes to get to a UNC, any other top university. If you don't have a support system around you through your middle school and high school years, the likelihood that you end up at one of these high ranking institutions is pretty low. In my opinion, there has to be some sort of support system around you. Prior to the mentorship program, were you on this trajectory for higher education or like what what was your what was your school experience like before you got introduced to this mentorship program? I think I think I'd always been a student that that achieved. I was in the gifted program for a while when I was growing up. And I think that I had a a natural inclination for learning. But I say the mentoring program in particular helped to reinforce that. It gave me some wraparound support. We had some different activities, things that kind of helped to create a, I guess, a more well-rounded 
experience. And I think some of that, I was actually talking to someone about this today, that even though I was provided with the mentoring program, it then required me to show up to it, which meant that I had to take the initiative to be at the sessions. I had to do any sort of assignments that I had. I had to meet with my mentor, those sorts of things. Uh, I had to take some initiative to be able to do that uh, as well. I think that was important to, to be able to lean into that. And then applying for college, I uh, had my guidance counselor at uh, my high school that helped me with that. Also, my mentor uh, supporting me with that process. I got a scholarship, uh, which that, along with uh, the family contribution, uh, helped to defray all my costs. So I went into UNC and didn't have I left without any any debt. I think that was something that was helpful as well. Word, word. No, that's definitely helpful to to finish school without any debt. No question. Yeah. You you talk to me about like you're going through school. Did you always want to go to Carolina? Were you one of those kids who just grew up knowing that's where you wanted to go? Because I always say black folks who go to Carolina are part of a cult. I'll always say this, but but. What was what was that like for you? Uh, to to be perfectly honest, my guidance counselor went to UNC and he was like, "This is where you applying to," and <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> so there was really no option B or C. You you were you knew you were streamlining uh, to try and get to Chapel Hill. Yep. Had you visited when you were in school, or had you been to the Triangle before you went to the went before you applied? It was a shot in the dark. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> Okay. And, and when you graduated high school, I, I guess I'm curious, like, what are you thinking you're about to go to school and study at the time? I came in as a bio and Spanish double major and didn't really like science and Spanish. I could have kept up with, but I had other things going on. I think pretty quickly I was having a really rough experience at Carolina. And I say in particular, and I share this, I think, related to just my experience as a uh, black person on campus and having to deal with microaggressions and folks treating me as if I didn't belong there. And I think that that part was really challenging because I think with the 100 part of the thing that I really appreciate is there were a lot of skills they taught me, but I, I don't think that they prepared me for the, the kind of racial dynamics that would uh, occur. And, and I'll, I'll say this, I'm going to I'm trying I'll say this in a very nuanced way with recognizing that the 100 um, has been a uh, organization that that I wouldn't be who I am today had I not uh, been a part of the 100. And I think that a lot of what I learned was uh, respectability politics. That There's a particular way that uh, a black man would have to navigate, dress, talk, uh, behave in order to be accepted. And I think that a lot of people of color. Uh, deal with that. The the verbal gymnastics, the code switching, all the all the things that we do to try to negotiate our our identities when we enter into spaces that uh, we know will view us as other. And I think that at Carolina, I ran into difficulty because uh, I just had a lot of white people that said things to me that I just didn't I didn't really understand why they were asking me the particular questions they were asking me. So it's I'm walking and they may ask me about a particular song, and I I enjoy. I enjoy music just like the rest of us, uh, but I might not know this particular artist and they're expecting because I'm black that I need to know this particular song or ask me what sport I play. Uh, again, I like sports like the rest of them, but I don't, I didn't consider myself to be uh, that 
I wasn't there on academic scholarship. It was it was an assumption that perhaps uh, there was some other reason I was there or uh, just some people just flat out saying, uh, hey, uh, my friend went to uh, Myers Park was a, a really uh, prominent high school in Charlotte. And a lot of folks uh, that went there went to Carolina. Uh, I had a friend that went to Myers Park and they didn't get to Carolina. Why are you here? It was always this message that uh, somehow I don't belong there or I kind of snuck in. And if you think about the ruling on the affirmative action uh, case and things of that nature, which Carolina and Harvard were part of, uh, it's this notion that there are uh, black people uh, that are getting into these universities that uh, aren't qualified. And it's just simply not uh, it's not true. It, we're not for black student movement. We're not for a pleasure fraternity when I was uh, at Carolina Alpha, Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, uh, the Musata chapter, getting involved in things like that really helped to affirm uh, my racial identity and then figure out how do I navigate in a larger campus environment that may not always be affirming of who I am as a person. Mm, okay. And and while you were at school, like you said, it was a, it was a bit of an adjustment, different environment that you were familiar with, didn't have the same support around you, uh, but ultimately you ended up creating or founding something similar to what you joined in high school, it sounds like. Is that is that fair to say? That's true. So what was the name of the organization you founded? Uh, Movement of Youth. So I founded it my junior year at Carolina. What what led to that? Well, I would say um, just having the experience that I had with the 100, I wanted to figure out if there were a way for me to create something similar for young Black men. And at that time, I was running for Mr. Black Student Movement, and we had to do a service project. Movement of Youth was what I came up with. I started working with Hillside High School. Actually, uh, there were a few uh, UNC grads that worked at Hillside, and I was able to get some inroads there to um, hand-select students from there. I was also able to work with some of my professors to get uh, get course credit for uh, the work that I was doing with Movement of Youth. I was able to, to that first year, you know, pull together uh, different Saturday Academy sessions and, and you know, brothers would come in and we'd do different activities. Uh, we could uh, be ourselves. We could shed the mask. We could really experience one another and build those relationships. Uh, after that first year, we were able to open it up uh, to young ladies uh, that following year and then continue to to build and grow, uh, grow the organization. And what would you say just the overall mission of movement of youth? Like what's the, the mission or goal of the org? So I'd say at that time, it was really to uh, expose youth of color to different opportunities. So that was Saturday Academy. That was college tours. We did some international travel uh, to help them to become college and career ready, but specifically for them to explore uh, the sorts of opportunities that would be most meaningful to them and to have that mentoring support to be able to to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're, you're already, now. I guess it's hard to say, but had you not experienced the mentorship program in high school, do you think you would have been moved to do something like this in college? It's hard to say, but I, I would I would say probably not. I think that because I had such a experience with that organization and it helped me to uh, figure out what I wanted to do in life, uh, I think I wanted to figure out a way to pay it forward to create those opportunities for uh, others. And I think in particular, uh, part of what was helpful about my college journey is I think that outside of the classroom, I think everybody, I think it, in college in some way, shape or form is searching for identity. They're trying to figure out who they're going to be for the remainder of their lives or 
or do some sort of self-discovery. And for me, uh, it was realizing that I didn't like science. I wanted to figure out ways to be who I wanted to be. I think there there's pressure sometimes uh, with first-generation college students to, to be something for their, their family or the people that kind of help them get into college. Uh, for me, that was uh, some conversation about me being a doctor, but it wasn't something that I was really interested in. It wasn't until I was able to change my major and to explore uh, my own gifts, talents, and passions that I found that working with people was something that I really enjoyed. That coupled with the experience that I had with the 100 led me to found uh, my own agency where I could create the environment to leverage what I was most passionate about to then make a difference as well. Word. But did you actually switch your major from biology or did you stick with it for the, the rest of the time? Uh, I think my major switched for me. I was about to flunk out. So I had to, I had to make some changes. So sometimes they, those changes help you uh, gain some clarity uh, as, as to what, what it is you want to do. But, but all jokes aside, I started taking uh, some communication studies courses. So small group communication and organizational communication. So, so things that, that I continue to build on professionally after a while. And so that, that really helped to, to lay the framework for me to explore what I wanted to do. Okay. Wow. So you, you get to this area because of UNC Chapel Hill, which is not Durham. Let's be clear. So as a young person who grew up sneaking onto that campus in high school, going to the parties, even getting people to swipe me in so I could eat in the calf. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I did get some love at Carolina. Let, let's be clear. But I know, let's just say the brothers on that campus were somewhat intimidated by the locals, the locals of color, in my opinion. This is this is this is my experience. And, and I don't want to compare it to the brothers at Duke, but just in my experience as an outsider, I would lie and say, yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a central student. And even though I was in high school, that wasn't like our gig. We'd be like, yeah, I'm in Central. And I studied criminal justice because that's what Jordan studied, right? So we was like, when we go to Duke versus Carolina and we find the black crowds, it, it felt like when we went to Carolina, the white crowds would be like, come on in and embrace us. And the black crowds would kind of be like, eh. And then at Duke, it was like the opposite. And that actually everybody kind of said, oh, come on in. It was kind of friendly. So I'm curious, like your, your experience at Carolina, what were your initial impressions of the city of Durham as a UNC Chapel Hill student? I don't I don't know that I really had an impression of Durham at all because I didn't get over to Durham uh, mm. much when I was at UNC other than when I started Movement of Youth. But outside of that, I didn't have any sort of impression as to what what Durham was like. Of course, I heard uh, different things about Durham. but Because you, you got to Carolina, like Welcome to Durham had just dropped, right? This is around that time period. Or, or no, this is uh, just after. You got to Carolina, what, like early 2000s? So I, so I came in in 2003. Okay, word, word. And, and, and when you were on campus before getting to Hillside and doing – and working with that uh, movement of youth, you really didn't have much interaction, maybe South Point every once in a while. Mm -hmm. So how did you, or let me ask this, once you finished school, what, what did you end up doing initially? I didn't, I didn't jump into movement of youth uh, full time. Of course, at that point, uh, we weren't even a nonprofit yet. I was actually, uh, so I started out working at Target 
I was an executive team leader. Uh, at that point, I actually thought that that was going to be my pathway uh, because I had worked at Target over the summers and I was back home in Charlotte and then I uh, got into their uh, their management track where you, you uh, get onto the executive team, you run a store, you do all the stuff. Uh, so I started that path. Uh, it just wasn't it wasn't something that brought me joy. I, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't feel uh, fulfilled uh, doing it. I think I, I gained some pretty significant experiences that came to to managing folks and things of that nature. But it, it, it just wasn't something that I woke up and was excited about. And I think that internally, uh, I didn't, for me, I didn't feel that's what work should be, that it shouldn't be something that you just, you kind of get up and you drag yourself to it. Uh, it should be something that really uh, excites you and brings you joy and zest. And that wasn't it. At, at Target. No zest at Target. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no zest. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. So so Target, so Target didn't so you you went into Target. So I guess because you 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 have you you create this thing in undergrad mm-hmm. and then you eventually build it into a, a real agency or an entity that is licensed or registered as a nonprofit. Like, right. mm-hmm. so did, was that the next thing after target or, or what was after target or like, mm. so, so movement of youth was still something that I was doing on the weekend. So we had Saturday academies and then I had a student executive team. So the model of movement of youth was, uh, it started as a student organization, but still had that student organization model. Uh, but I was able to set up a student executive team. Um, students from UNC were, uh, they would lead the work. I would support that work and structuring some things. Uh, but my, my job after that, I was actually uh, working at the, the North Carolina Institute for Minority Economic Development. So I was developing um, executive education programs for veteran-owned, women-owned, and minority-owned companies folks that uh, had started different sorts of businesses, I was working with business schools to build out these programs. So this would be kind of like a, uh, if you think about a weekend program or something over a couple of days where people would learn about uh, marketing, human resources, financial management. And this is working with professors from Keenan Flagler, from the People School of Business, Wake Forest, and building these custom programs for folks that I really admired and got to see firsthand what it meant for a person that looked like me to start a business from scratch and build it into, say, a multi-million dollar construction company or to uh, build it into a clinical trials company. It was just something that was really inspiring. Again, seeing people that looked like me uh, doing these sorts of things and, and oftentimes doing it with uh, less resources, say, than their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, because you're running for a position in the Durham Public School Board of Education and for the last, what, decade plus professionally, you've been in this world of youth development, creating just not just policies, but actual curriculum workshops, like on the grounds with folks. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I'm, I'm curious, like what, what do you envision here in terms of impact if given the chance to be on the school board? Yeah, well, I think, I think there are a couple of things that I believe I bring to the table. I think First and foremost, I would say my temperament, that I am one that listens deeply and tries to process through information and then figure out what are the ways that we can develop a course of action that considers the priorities of multiple stakeholder groups. My, so my professional background outside of, or academic background outside of UNC is that I also have 
a master of science in organization development from uh, American University School of Public Affairs. And, and that program uh, is through the lens of the applied behavioral sciences. So you're looking at human behavior from uh, the individual, the group and the organizational level. And you start with uh, use of self, which means uh, looking at yourself first as a as a, a tool, an instrument uh, within a system and figuring out what are the key things that you may need to work on first before you can even be effective uh, in a particular system. So essentially holding up the mirror. And I think that's something that a lot of folks aren't really able to do to really self-examine and figure out what it is they need to to work on or to improve in order to kind of take themselves to the next level. So it starts with that. Then you look at uh, group dynamics. So as you're working within groups, how do you how do you understand power dynamics? How do you understand uh, the spoken and the unspoken, the different contexts that might exist within uh, a group dynamic? How do you then build group cohesion? So as you have these different people that are working together, what's necessary for them to actually be a team? And then when you get to the system level, uh, that's more of the the policy the policies that have been put in place, the things that uh, kind of inform how everybody's behaving. Uh, in that particular system? What are the levers that are necessary to push forward large systems change? Uh, That is a skill set that I don't know that currently exists on the board. And I've been able to do that uh, not only locally, but also internationally. Um, So that is something that I would bring to the table. Uh, I would say, uh, because I understand systems at a different level, I think the team dynamic on the board would be something that I'd be interested in exploring, uh, that a lot of the the ways in which the board is comprised. And I think this is something that has been a challenge for me being a newcomer in the political space, the the role of political action committees and who they endorse and why they endorse them and, and what that means as it relates to decisions that are being made. Uh, I think that we need to keep the politics out of the school board and really focus on how do we make sure that we are informed by the needs of the constituents. And specifically, I say children. If you think about the situation that's happened Currently in the district, I believe that the children have been casualties. Um, Considering the makeup of our district, those are black and brown kids that are are now dealing with yet another thing already coming out of COVID and everything that that means as it relates to the learning loss and things of that nature to now then be confronted with another system, with another uh, situation that doesn't really uh, take their best interests into consideration. Um, so I, I think th- those are a few few pieces. I say also, too, asking the right questions. With what happened with the the budget situation, I, I don't know that the right questions were asked at the right time, that there was enough information available well enough ago in the past for questions to have been asked related to whether or not this was financially feasible. So I, think, I, think, I think there are multiple people that didn't ask the right questions or maybe didn't know the questions to ask. I don't know. But I think uh, I bring a level of curiosity uh, where I would ask those questions, even though if they're difficult questions to ask, uh, to make sure that we are doing our due diligence. Because one of the uh, roles of a board is uh, fiduciary responsibility, that we are fiscally responsible uh, to our constituents. And if we're not doing our due diligence as it relates to the finances and things of that nature, uh, then it creates distrust. And I think that's what we have right now. And you, you mentioned a, a few things in you know, being new to politics, like you said, keeping politics out of the schools, I think is an interesting, interesting point. And because this is your your first, I guess, political role or or first swing at politics, like what's that initial just experience like from being an educator on the ground to now actually having a politic to try and accomplish a goal? 
What what has that transition been like for you? I would say one, and I think I said this before, I wasn't looking to run for office at all. I think that as an outsider, as an outsider, I had seen a lot of things in the political space that I found to be very unsavory, toxic behaviors. I think there are some pretty significant personal costs that come to bear and also media scrutiny. And I've experienced all of those things being in this race. Uh, it's had an impact on me. I, I would say that I've, uh, I've been telling folks that I've, I've aged. Uh, some of that is wisdom, but I just feel I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. And and I think it's uh, what I've experienced is why a lot of people decide not to get into politics, uh, because you have you know, people that really just want to make a difference. And then all of this other stuff shows up that really takes away from one's ability to be effective. Alejandra, who asked me, I, I tell her all the time, you asked me to do this and I'm doing it. But it's, it's just really one of those things where we have to get to a space where we can get away from the the games, the the bullying, the, I'd say, abuse that occurs in the space and really focus on how do we prepare people that really want to be in this space to get work done? How do, how do we help them be successful? How do we you know, shift away from the, the various agendas that are at at, at play and, and really focus on what's most important. I would say what I'm most proud of is despite what I've experienced in this process, uh, I don't feel that I've changed. I feel like that I've shown up in a very consistent way, uh, that I have uh, behaved in ways that I can uh, say that I've maintained my dignity, my decency, and, and my self-respect. That's something that I can stand on, that this process, uh, while it's been unpleasant, it hasn't changed me. I don't feel bitter at all. Uh, for what I've experienced and that I'll just continue moving forward, uh, whatever the outcome of the race is. And I'm going to keep being myself because I think that when one is consistent enough in their behavior, for those that want to tell a different story, it's going to come a point in time where there's going to be too much inconsistency with that other story and my behavior. And if I'm showing up in the same way over and over and over, and there's this other story for those that are interested they will see the inconsistencies and they can make their own decision as it relates to who's actually telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you mentioned, you mentioned personal losses, media scrutiny. And one of the, one of the things that has come up and you mentioned it in your promo video or what do we call it? Is that a promo video or what is that an announcement? Like what, what are you a trailer? What do we, what do we call that piece of content? Whatever you would like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that you were, you were falsely accused years ago of, of something that you didn't do. And, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to talk about this just from the perspective of being in politics and, and having to then, unexpectedly face things that you thought you maybe have dealt with, right? And put behind you, right? Like what, if you don't mind just sharing, and, and I also want to give you opportunity to, to speak from your perspective on just not so much what allegedly took place, but how and why this is at the forefront today. Like, I'm really curious to hear from you, like why you feel like this is even a thing today, but what were those false allegations that are being brought up by the media? Sure. So I was, I was falsely accused of rape. It was fully investigated by law enforcement and the claims were found to be unsubstantiated. Unfortunately, this was not something that was investigated by my by my employer at the time. I was just let go from my job. And I think that it was the type of situation based on how it was handled that people externally had not only known that I've been fired, but what I've been fired for. People were calling me all sorts of names, telling me I was going to be finished, et cetera. And that's when I had to figure out how to 
figure out a pathway to move forward with my life that felt felt congruent with who I was as a person and who I knew myself to be. And that's what I did. In the video, I talk about that, that I had to work as a janitor for a while. And I learned a lot about people and what they value in that process, that there were times that as I walk into the health department, I have my suit, people talk to me, and then I go and change clothes, put on my janitorial gear. And it was as if I were invisible. And I learned a lot about casual cruelty. And what I mean by that is that everyday people can be cruel based on just not seeing people. I could be in someone's cubicle, emptying out their trash can, seeing pictures of their kids and things of that nature. And maybe they stay late one night and I decide to strike up a conversation and they wouldn't want to speak to me. And so things like that, that would happen over and over or people asking me, well, when, when will you get a real job? And those sorts of things. And I think that when when you have a when you have a dream or when you have something that you hold to be dear to you, you have to be willing to pursue that with a level of care and diligence that other people may not understand. I think when you have a gift, other people won't be able to discern or or really kind of grasp the calling that you might have. And I really do feel that. The work that I'm that I've been engaged in and youth development has been a calling and that I've been willing to make a lot of personal sacrifices that in many ways, I may be the only person that really appreciates those sacrifices because a lot of a lot of people may not be moved by what I've had to sacrifice or what I've experienced. And I have to be intrinsically motivated to do those things, whether or not I'm receiving external validation, which makes it really, that's what's been really difficult being in the political space, because now I'm having to talk about work that I've been doing. I've just been doing the work. Like I haven't, I haven't been out there promoting myself. You gotta be a salesperson. And that's just not, and and I'm not, and I'm not judging anyone that does that or that there's anything wrong with, but it's just, it's just different for me because I've just been doing, doing the work. And now all of a sudden I'm having to shout out from the mountaintops that I'm doing this stuff for young people. And for me, I'm just doing, I'm just doing the work. And I think that that's, that's what I think kind of keeps me going, that I keep my head down and I keep doing the work. And again, whatever happens with this process, I'm still going to be doing the work. All the attacks that I face, I'm still going to be doing the work. All the naysay, I'm still going to be doing the work because that's what I that's what I do. It's just been really uh, a bit frustrating to have to now deal with this a decade later because I, I've moved on with my life. I'm continuing to do the work that I've been doing, the track record speaks for itself. I think at the end of the day, I have to continue to pivot back to what's most important, which is the work and that I'm good at the work that I do. And I want to continue to do that work, uh, whether or not I'm in office. It's a couple of things that come to mind here in hearing you speak. One, uh, with respect, you know, the, 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 the school board election isn't like the biggest turnout for, for voters, I would imagine, relative to some other public positions, right? The fact that, <laughs> the fact that so people say they, right? So I don't know who they is, <laughs> but the fact, <laughs> the fact that the powers that be have gone to the links that they have gone to, to rehash some of this stuff to prevent you from or at an attempt for, to try and deter people from voting for you for this at-large seat tells me that somebody out there might have something personal against you or like not want you to be in this seat it makes me think like they must really not want a trace to be in this seat and then it, and then the other piece to it is is, is like it, it seems especially in this era me too uh cancel culture 
it seems like a, a just a very intentional attempt to to do some damage to you as an as an individual just from the outside in right and and i'm i'm I'm, just, I'm curious from your perspective like why do you think this is happening outside of the fact that you're running for something like why do you think this is is coming back up 10 years later it's the fact that i'm running for something <laughs> i mean and and the part that's the part that I chuckle about, I don't know to the extent this would have come back up if I weren't running for office because I've, I've been, I've been here. Uh, it's not like I've moved and the, the people, whoever those people are that are coming for me, they know where I stay. They know where I am. I think that uh, to the extent that one wants to try to uh, damage me or ruin my reputation or whatever, whatever those things might be, I think that it kind of goes back to what I was saying as it relates to the initial period over a decade ago when I lost my job. I experienced a lot of people turning their back on me and doing this. And where were you working at the time? So I I was still working at the Institute. I was uh, doing some work with Public Allies. So they had a a leadership development program that I helped to uh, help to relaunch. At, At that time, I had folks that said what they said about me, told me I was going to be finished. And I think that what I've learned is that people's opinions of you can be very fickle and they uh, they can blow with the wind and they can treat you how they treat you. And I think that what's most important is how I feel about me. And I, I have a fundamental clarity about who I know myself to be as a person, the type of person that I want to be and how I want to show up in the world. And I've, I've made a decision a very long time ago that I, I would not be an adversary of myself. Uh, that I, I commit to uh, to loving myself fully, uh, which means that uh, every part of my journey can be honored, uh, whether that's good, bad or indifferent, that every day I wake up is an opportunity to to get things right and to move forward. So when I commit to myself in that way, when I'm faced with the sort of uh, challenges and opposition that I'm faced with, I have to remember that it's not the critic that counts. The people that, that try to tell you how you how you should be doing things different, especially those folks uh, haven't haven't been doing the work, uh, then it's contended upon myself to uh, again maintain some sort of mental clarity to uh, keep moving forward, to stay focused on what's most important, also to not uh, return that sort of negative energy. Uh, I don't have it in me to to return vitriol, to return bitterness and hatred. That's not that's not a part of my my how I operate. For me. When people think about what does it look like to fight back, uh, what I do is I keep going. Uh, I learn, I see things. Uh, I think my discernment through this process has been heightened uh, as it relates to when people say they support you or uh, when you think about who you can trust. Uh, there's a lot that I've learned about what that actually means in a process like this, especially when uh, one is faced with controversy, because I think it's very easy for someone to say they support you uh, when things are pretty, when things look good. But uh, when controversy hits, then that support, that tr- all that stuff, it, it shifts, it changes. And one has to be willing to to notice, to not take it personally, to not judge, to recognize that people are people, uh, but to be aware that because when this situation is over, I, I saw all of that. I saw everything that happened. I was I was awake. I was present for it. And now I can move differently uh, based on this new space that I'm in with the information that I've gained from this experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just like for the record, you, you like you said, there were false allegations and you didn't there were no consequences that came as a, like outside of the consequences that came from work and things of that nature. But in terms of legality, you being charged and convicted or anything like that, like like just for the record, none, none of these accusations were ever 
confound his convictions. I don't even know the right terminology here, but th- th- that's what I'm getting at. None of this stuff, you, were con- you weren't convicted of anything. No, no, not charged or convicted of anything. Not charged or convicted. Right. Uh, so it was just, it was, it was, it was a, it was an accusation that didn't even amount to charges being filed. That's correct. Okay. Look, it, I think it's important to just understand the truth of what took place uh, because I, I do think in today's, today's day and age and rightfully there, the, the, when we talk about identity and showing up and, and all these things like the, 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 the male dominated industries that we have and how men often abuse power in certain situations, like these are things that do need to be addressed. Uh, but unfortunately, um, these are things that, that can be used uh, against good individuals who aren't doing anything harmful. You see what I'm saying? It, it With respect to uh, victims who actually get abused, th- there's the unfortunate other side that people use this system to cause abuse to other individuals by making these accusations because they know the accusation in itself can have certain damages. And it's crazy to hear that you didn't even have things officially filed as charges and still lost what you were doing professionally and everything. And that was before the Me Too movement and everything was going on. So that is unfortunate to hear, but the the highlight or the moral, I think the takeaway is not letting that stop you, right? You 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 mentioned that in the in the video about bouncing back, not giving up. You humbled yourself to even do a a, a blue collar type type job, uh being a janitor and and you sort of spoke to that experience, but as you're going through that process, putting putting in that work, like what are you in your head? Like, what do you think you're setting yourself up for next? Like, because what just happened, happened. You're in the process of figuring out the next thing. But like, where are you in your head at the time? Like, what are you actually thinking you're setting yourself up for? I'll, I'll say one thing. So I think even even when it came to being on the janitorial team, like I I, uh, I didn't see it as I didn't see it as humbling myself at all, because I think uh, quite I just I enjoy cleaning. So so <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a thing for me at all. I think that what what I despise is how I was treated because I was cleaning, uh, because I think that there there is a hierarchy in the types of positions that people have in this world that determine can determine the degree of respect that someone should receive based on their profession. And I just don't I don't believe in that. I believe that uh, all work has dignity. If someone's making a, a, a decent living, they're providing for whoever they need to provide for. They should have the space to do that and not be ridiculed because of whatever their, their profession is. That that piece. I think the second, though, is when you when one is I think that relates to this previous point, when when one is not focused on on titles or position, uh, I think one can uh, develop the the internal resources uh, to figure out who you actually are. When I say who you actually are, that's who you are when no one's looking, when no one's watching, when there's no camera. Uh, who is it that you're yourself to be? And if you can, if you can be intimate with that person and really love and hold and and see that person, then I think it it creates a greater sense of clarity because then when you when you become one with with who you are and you commit to sh- showing up authentically it creates a, a lot more freedom because you're not you're not hiding who you are and i think that there's something that terrifies it can terrify other people when they're confronted with someone who wants to show up in that way 
uh, because I think a lot of folks are, uh, we're meeting a lot of representatives. Uh, we're not actually communicating with other people. It's their representative, the person that they, they want you to think they are. And I think it, it creates a space where we actually can't, uh, can't be in honest relationship with one another because people are pretending. And I think that when you shift away from pretending and you lean into a much more honest, honest living as it, as, as it, as it, as it were, then you create pathways to connection. For me, I can, I can say that, that I'm proud of the person that I am, that I can, I go to sleep and I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not having any bad dreams about things that I've done or because I'm all is, all is well with my soul. Uh, as they say, like, I'm not, I don't have any, anything that, that I need to be ashamed of uh, when I wake up in the morning and I look myself in the mirror, uh, I'm okay with who I see in my reflection, the, the way that I interact uh, with people. I believe that I, I interact with people with decent, decency and respect for me. That's how I try to navigate. That's the sort of energy that I want to have. And I think that that comes from uh, being willing to just do what's necessary and do so in such a way that no matter what you're doing, uh, you could do it with decency and respect. You know, me cleaning, like I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I'll, this is my story. Uh, I was the fastest when it came to emptying out trash cans. I wasn't missing a trash can. Uh, I knew I knew where all of them were. I was I was uh, I was skilled with the mop. And it was something that I, I wasn't ashamed of cleaning. I think again, it was just having to reconcile what it meant for people to treat me a particular way because of a profession, which all of this stuff is artificial anyway. <laughs> so it's, it's stuff stuff that we've created, and we have this these sort of rules that we have in place that we, we've we all kind of agreed to, and it doesn't make sense. I feel like I'm just kind of, uh, I don't know what I'm saying right now, other than, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. And, and, and because because this is this is uh, roughly 10 years ago, where were you living at the time? Were you in Durham yet, or where were you staying? Well, I, was, I was in the same spot I'm in now, yeah. Okay, what, was that your first residence in Durham? Oh yeah, that's, that's my first and only, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what year did you move out there? I think that was maybe 2008, 2009. Yes, I was a, I was the first time home buyer and they uh, but that at that time the place that I have now it was under it was under foreclosure. I was first time home buyer and they had this special program where you could get uh, you can get two loans, but one of them would be forgiven if you stayed there for uh, for ten years as your primary residence. So getting it under foreclosure and then having this loan that would then disappear, uh, my mortgage super low, and I was able to uh, fix fix the place up. It was a a great deal. I'm always intended to be an investment property at some point. It will be. Where yeah, that was um. Dang boy, like just just for for folks out there listening, because this is a. Uh... 20 like i'm curious did you were you able to get it before the crash in in 20 in 2009 or because once the market crashed in 2009 then the interest rates went down real low for the first time like was this before that happened or after that happened if you remember i i, I think it was i think it was before i worked i worked with a a realtor, actually Success Realty. So shout out to Success Realty that helped me with that. And my goal, because I was at the time I was paying rent, and I was and I was in I was in Chapel Hill, uh, right on the edge of Durham, and I was looking to find a spot that I could either pay the same amount or less for uh, 
afford mortgage. I fortunately was able to find a spot that uh, met all my needs, was in a good location. I was able to 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 get that. And without giving just just without giving away, because just to, to speak about how much Durham has changed, and 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 that leads to the, this position, in my opinion, because the the makeup of the city is is changing. It's um, like you say, black and brown, but it's 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 starting to white out a little bit. And that's no offense to the whites. I just know growing up in Durham oh, as a as a local who grew up in Durham, who when you couldn't go downtown, for example, like before there was really anything to do in Durham. I never went anywhere where I was like the only black person. Mm. OK, but today way too often in my opinion i'll be out with with the wife and i'll look around and and we will be the only black couple in the in the space right this the, the affordability of durham is a real conversation like in 2009 now granted it was a foreclosure but like how much were you able to obtain this property for and it, and it wasn't like depleted where you couldn't live in it either like it was it was a livable property. Like, how much were you able to obtain this for in 2008-2009? I think it was maybe sixty or sixty thousand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a uh, it was an incredible deal. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was an incredible deal. I mean, it's one of those things where I was in the right place at the right time. I think I think being able to find something like that, especially as a as a first time home buyer, I think it it really put me in a different position so and, and when you say like uh like being a first-time home buyer like owning a home put you in a different position or are you saying the uniqueness of what you were able to to, to get i think that i think the uniqueness of what i was able to get because my my mortgage was like 285 <laughs> uh and so and then you add on the, the hoa dues which are around 110 or something like that so that's under 500 dollars a month Less than most people's car payment. So for me, I think it was honestly, it was a blessing to be able to find that. And I get calls almost every day. People that that they get your number somehow. Atreus, can I talk to you about your property? Like, no, like, I don't. yeah. <laughs> and I have it. And I've owned in that neighborhood since 2017. And I still feel blessed to have gotten in there when I did. But and I get I get the same calls, uh, tech, random text messages for people wanting to wanting to buy the, buy those properties. But I just wanted to for you to speak to that, just because like today that same type of property is not going to go on the market for under two hundred thousand, and 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 that's like the floor now. Like in just that short of time, Durham was a place where you could find livable starter homes for a hundred thousand, even less, and now good luck trying to find a starter home under 250 right mm -hmm. i'm curious like what like what do you think the school the, the board of education's role is in helping maybe not even helping but just in dealing with that reality when you're looking at policy things of that nature for the for the kids like how does this this come into play if at all when we start talking about school board education and policies so what in particular, what housing or what? just the, the affordability, the affordability of Durham and and how like like what. So, for example, grew up in Durham and I've shared this on prior pods. I never really one knew. I never knew what the school of science and math was. I, I just knew it was this thing on ninth and club. I never quite understood like how good of a school it was. Now, granted, it's not a Durham public school. But the other thing I never really quite understood was this idea of Research Triangle Park. I never really understood RTP and what it meant. 
And I feel like one of the things that Durham Public Schools is lacking is connecting the the folks that grow up here to those opportunities and those realities that are right here in your backyard, right? Like a lot of ways to professionalize yourself and make money in the triangle. And I feel like growing up in Durham, going through public schools, the school system doesn't really prepare the average student to take advantage of those opportunities, in my opinion, especially given in this tech space. Is the school board an entity that can help make some of these changes? And if not, I'm curious just to hear your overall opinion on how well are we preparing during public school students for the realities of what it takes to compete as adults in this world. Granted, they got to go to school, but the foundation starts in the public school K through 12. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I would say I would say definitely as it relates to what the school board could do. So there is, of course, a strategic plan that is normally pulled together by the superintendent, their cabinet that can include various priorities and the board could uh, approve those. I know as it, as it relates to preparing young people for some of the careers that are coming uh, coming down the pathway. Uh, I think one of the things that I've said years ago and we're starting to see it now that technology is de-skilling the workforce. There are a lot of jobs that uh, will no longer exist or will be reduced uh, because you now uh, have technology that can essentially do the work that a human used to be able to do. I think being able to have adaptable skills is going to be uh, be really important to, to figure out uh, how do you pivot uh, if there's a particular career uh, that's not available. I'd say also, too, uh, looking at credentialing. What I mean by that is um, skilled trades, I think, will uh, will be something that uh, we'll need people for. And I think that uh, given the fact that most of my work has been in the uh, college access space, helping young people to get to college, I don't believe that, and especially now if you consider uh, student debt and things of that nature, just the what it even means to go to a four-year institution. I think that there there are alternate pathways that people can explore. And again, this goes back to this, this conversation about dignity, that whatever pathway you choose, uh, there's dignity in it. And I think that credentials for skilled workers, I think, will be really important. What are the things that we can do uh, in partnership with Durham Tech and other uh, sorts of entities like that that can help uh, young people get those credentials for particular jobs, I think is going to be be really important. Um, but I think it, it comes down to uh, helping young people try to figure out what what might be a reasonable pathway and then match them up with the, the skills and, and the mentors, the wraparound supports that help them to explore that pathway in a uh, responsible way. Uh, because I, I can say when I say responsible way, is I think it's going to take guidance from somebody else to kind of help you think through uh, what you might potentially potentially be doing for the rest of your life. I, I can say, in some to some degree, I'm still that's still evolving now. The the thought of of someone having to decide where they're going to be for the rest of their life at such an early age, I think there should be some general kind of ideas of what that looks like, and then having say a mentor or somebody else. Uh, can really help them kind of uh, move down that pathway. It's it, the other side, like you say, the the technology is taking away jobs, but it's also going to create jobs that don't exist. And I and I, and the way that technology moves versus the way that public school systems tend to move, it, it, it the private sector tends to keep going, going, going. Yeah. Whereas public oh, public offices tend to move a little bit slower, right? I, I, I like I like what you said there and. Like from a from a public school perspective, do you think it's feasible for us to get things like 
mechanic school and wood shop carpentry school like these these trade these these trade classes like can we get these back in public schools is there any chances that that could reasonably happen or or and if, if how could it like what would be the thing to make it actually happen? Well, I think I think as it relates to uh, some of the skilled trades uh, being in schools, to the extent that that could happen is something that I would uh, certainly encourage. Um, but I'd say also where there are partnerships, say, with community colleges and things of that nature, uh, or even, um, as I mentioned, wraparound supports. If they're say this is something that can't be done within the context of a school district, if there are programs in the community that are partnering with the district that extend beyond the school day, that then represents an opportunity for young people to get exposed to those other uh, skilled pathways that, that they can they can explore. I think there are multiple ways that uh, one could look at doing something like that. Mm. And and then uh, another thing that that in the in the uh, promo clip, there was a highlight of of I don't remember the headline exactly, but it was a study about black kids getting suspended is and, it, and it's and it looks specific to Durham to say like there was something going on. Can you just speak to that headline? You you had it in the clip. Like what what does that mean? And 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 why is that important for us? It's actually something that I've I've talked about while campaigning is that you in Durham, you're seeing black and brown students uh, overrepresented when it comes to uh, discipline. That's essentially what that that headline is talking about, that when it comes to you know, students being suspended or, or different things of that nature, uh, there's a disproportionality there that, that needs to be uh, addressed. And part of what I've been talking about in my platform is really looking at uh, restorative justice practices. What What is what are ways that uh, if a young person, say, uh, gets in trouble or does something, that uh, they can be uh, restored to that school community in such a way that uh, they haven't they haven't missed a, missed a lot of school. They've been able to reconcile with with uh, the person or whatever that situation is. So they can move forward. That becomes important. I'd say also too, as it relates to what even leads up to a suspension. I think that there need to be uh, needs to be some additional training with with teachers and and. And just making sure there there isn't uh, bias as it relates to certain behaviors that could be viewed as disruptive. All of those pieces, I think, um, could play into reducing the amount of suspensions. I think also, and I'll continue saying this, I think mentoring programs are really important. Programs that uh, provide a supportive, caring adult that works with a young person on particular things. Uh, that's been shown to to lower instances of discipline in schools. I think there, there are various ways to, to do that. Yeah, man, the, the, the school to prison pipeline is a real thing. And I got to be honest, like, I like, I love what you're saying because just because a young person is misbehaving doesn't mean it's time to punish them. You know what I'm saying? Like, like sometimes teachers and just folks in education are so quick to want to punish somebody, like get them in trouble. Where, like, aren't we here to educate all around? Like, that's a part of the learning. It's not just getting grades and doing as you say. This is about learning the overall experience. And I and I and I agree with what you're saying, man. We gotta stop rushing to just not just get people in trouble, but then these things have unintended consequences down the line when they're trying to do other things and now they got a, a reputation. Now they have to overcome some stigmas and then man, I <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of that. And 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 I would I would like to see more of, of what you're talking about in terms of mentorship. I guess, I guess like we're gonna start to close out, but I guess like my my question is is from a from a from a school board perspective, like we're saying that it, they more so focus on the policies. 
you're running for a seat. People could go out and vote to, today, tomorrow. Like, let's just talk about uh, the early voting and, and where people can do that and up until what day. There, there are various precincts that people can can vote at. The, the early voting locations uh, certainly have been published. Uh, this will go up until March 2nd, uh, and then March 5th will be uh, the primary election. So people have until March 2nd, 2nd to finish with uh, with early voting. Uh, I've already voted. Uh, hopefully folks will get out, and if they enjoy what they've heard, uh, that they can cast their vote for me. And and just to make sure that we, we didn't miss this, because before you made this decision to run, what were you doing as a professional? So the work that I do now is with a youth mentoring collaborative. And we, uh, in short, we mentor mentors and mentoring agencies to help them be better at what they do. What that looks like is capacity building work. That's anything from strategic planning to helping with fund development, uh, marketing, looking at their internal operations, implementing evidence-based practices. So we work with the organizations that work with young people. So if you think about a Big Brothers Big Sisters, uh, communities and schools, uh, those agencies would be our clients. Uh, We also do some legislative work. So at the state level, we're trying to look at an appropriation for small to mid-sized mentoring agencies so to get some funding directed to them. Uh, We also have something called Healing Center Mentoring. Uh, It is a signature approach to mentoring that we have created that uh, infuses mental health modalities into mentoring. So that's emotion regulation, distress tolerance, poor mindfulness skills, interpersonal effectiveness. Those evidence-based mental health skills can be taught to lay professionals and to young people to help them to create uh, lives they they can be proud of living. We have a fellowship where we bring mentoring practitioners through that. Uh, We also have a conference that we do. So our Carolina's Youth Mentoring Symposium, we do every fall. We bring together approximately 300 uh, young people and adults to learn about mentoring best practices. We have a summer social justice academy. So during the summer, we pay young people to learn about social justice topics. So that could be health, education, uh, things of that nature. They have individual presentations of learning where they synthesize what they've learned. They present that. And then we also have group projects that we do with them as well. And then we have a annual Champions of Mentoring uh, reception and awards at the uh, Executive Mansion where we uh, award folks that are doing uh, work in the mentoring space. And we have an annual Youth Mentoring Legislative Day. So we have young people that go to the General Assembly to talk directly uh, with with policymakers related to mentoring, why it's important, uh, et cetera. We typically have about, um, on the capacity building side, about 30 clients uh, per year that we work with, uh, mostly in North Carolina, but we have some in South Carolina, uh, D.C., other places. This year, we also have some clients in New York. See, this is why it's so silly with that messy politic bull because (laughs) people are trying to, to go out of their way to talk bad about you when regardless of what happens with this uh, campaign, it sounds like the school board education need to be a client or Durham public schools need to be a client to learn how to implement some of these services that can de- evidence based services, which we all know is key in this world. You got to have the evidence when you got evidence based practices to talk about a lot of what you're you were saying. Now, obviously, a lot of what we lack, you are putting the work in and doing it in a like an evidence-based practice. So we would get more done if we just worked together. Like like we say, if it, it was just if it was about the work and it was about the, the people, why why would I try and tear down somebody in a position like this with the skill set they have, with the knowledge base that they have and the experience that they have working in the industry with all these different clients? Why would I try and tear something like that down versus 
take advantage, learn from it, get it ingrained in what we do here locally, man. So I'm definitely, I'm, I'm definitely rooting for you. Uh, I think you, I think ever since I've known you, like you said, being consistent, consistent dad, I see you with you and your daughter. Oftentimes, I trusted you enough to watch Mamba over there, so that 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 even <laughs> speaks to like a, a level of, of of some trust there. But like in in terms of this particular role that you're that you're running for, man, I I I, I can see why the person currently in the seat personally asked you to run for this position. Like I think that's something too to highlight here is that you didn't wake up and say. Like Mr. Burns, like I got a plan to take over DPS. You know what I'm saying? You actually were asked to do this by somebody who's been doing it, somebody who's well respected. And and now here you are once again putting in that work, man. So definitely if you're out there listening and you gotta be a Durham resident, I'm assuming you can't vote for this if you in Chapel Hill or yeah. Raleigh, right? Like this is this is strictly in Durham. If you're a Durham resident, you out there watching, listening, you catch this, make sure you get out there and vote for that at-large seat with the Durham Public Schools uh, Board of Education. Vote the good way, not the other way, the good way, right? <laughs> now, Like that. Now, um, that said, early voting is going to wrap up March 2nd. Yeah. And if you don't make it to the early vote on March 2nd, what what's the backup plan? March 5th, March 5th. So you go to your home precinct at that point. And then after that, it's a wrap. That's it. Any last sort of words or takeaways that you hope people listening here will take with them, whether it be to the poll or just in general, what, what, what do you hope that people watching are able to take away after getting a chance to hear you speak? I think that uh, hopefully people have learned something about me. I think that what's interesting in this political process and just how I've experienced it. There are a lot of people that may make assumptions about you or just feel some kind of way and they've never really engaged with you at all. I think that I'm grateful that you provided this space for me to to speak with you and to to be able to to do this. But I say I just encourage people to go out, uh, get to know folks and, and have conver- have real conversations with them that are substantive, uh, that really help you to get a better understanding of who people are. Uh, because I think that when we miss the opportunity to connect in those ways that are that are authentic, we create much more division uh, because we haven't found a way to to authentic, authentically engage with one another. Word up, man! Y'all already know what it is. This is the G podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future and f- everything else. Make sure y'all get out there and vote. Early voting ends March second. If you aren't able to catch that, make sure you go to your local spot i ain't got the terminology right by march 5th make sure y'all get out there vote for a tray is good at the at-large seat for the durham public schools board of education we are out of here make sure y'all tune in to the next one hit that subscribe button do a button I like it.